Hello and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talked to Bruce Weaver, a Mohawk elder and valued member of the Guelph community who is always helping to guide the local discussion about truth and reconciliation. Indeed, this Thursday is the first ever National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, which is, theoretically, a new statutory holiday meant to assist settlers in the process of making amends to Canada's Indigenous community. The practicality is that, for the most part, people will have to find a way to mark this day of truth and reconciliation as best they can, and there will be no shortage of options here in Guelph. For this podcast, Bruce Weaver will guide us on a more personal conversation about realizing truth and reconciliation person to person, if not nation to nation. And that will be the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. This year's first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation comes on the coattails of a federal election where the question wasn't whether a party would do more for Indigenous people, it was a matter of how quickly they would do it. That election was preceded with almost weekly news of a new unmarked grave being discovered on the property of an old residential school somewhere. That started out back in May with the discovery of 215 graves belonging to Indigenous children in Kamloops. Locally, there was a rally in March in front of the Basilica of Our Lady in June, and then again on a subdued Canada Day, both public displays of Indigenous anger about how they've been ignored for so long and yet, they were also demonstrations of hope that the settler community might be willing to finally listen. Undoing the 100-plus years of systemic abuse and outrage is part of the point with the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, which for years has been marked as Orange Shirt Day. The name comes from Phyllis Webstead, a member of the Sitsuekamixgadam First Nation, who wore a nice new orange shirt on her first day of school at St. Joseph's Residential School in Williams Lake, B.C., in 1973. That shirt was promptly taken away and it was never returned, which is a metaphor for the treatment of indigenous people at all residential schools where kids were stripped of their language, their culture, their identity, and in many cases, their lives. The story itself, though, is terribly personal and makes me wonder, while we struggle with the huge weight of history, am I doing everything that I can on a personal level to be a good friend and ally to our indigenous neighbors? That question is at the heart of this week's Guelph Politicast, and Bruce Weaver will aim to set me straight on a couple of things as we count down to the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation on September 30th. Bruce actually suggested the various topics we discussed, and we cover them the best that we can, including the proper protocols when a reporter is asking an Indigenous person for comment, how some Indigenous customs are wary of the deadlines of modern journalism, and how the granting of knowledge is a commodity in Indigenous communities. And we also talk about how even good-natured attempts at outreach can fall into colonialist patterns, how to keep territorial acknowledgments meaningful, and why we always need to keep in mind that the thoughts and opinions of one Indigenous person does not represent the thoughts and opinions of every Indigenous person. So I caught up with Bruce Weaver earlier this week via Zoom. So, Bruce Weaver, thank you so much for joining me today. It's good to be with you, Adam. And uh, I guess I wanted to start off with, and so everybody who's listening knows, you know, you gave me some suggested topics that we should cover. Um, and one of the things you mentioned was there are certain things, certain protocols you wished members of the media were aware of when they're talking to Indigenous people about Indigenous issues. So, 
it seemed like a natural place to start to start there and not start off on the wrong foot. So um, enlighten me. What are what are some of the protocols I should be aware of when I'm talking to indigenous people on the record? When you start, uh, give them a moment to introduce themselves in the traditional way. Like okay, this. perfect. Deojana de Yangyats. Ganyankahaga hi my name Deogenide means his bright fire and I gave you that uh, name in Mohawk and I then I told you that I'm a member of the Mohawks of the Bay of Quinte and the final piece Waganyatin tells you that my clan is the turtle clan mm-hmm and for indigenous people that tells you a lot because the clan tells you what our roles and obligations are in our communities the for those communities that still follow the traditional ways uh, the name and location are important because then people go oh okay I know people in that community it's it's almost like giving your uh, pedigree in, mm. in short form <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's interesting I'm, I guess we don't really do that amongst the settler community. We don't, you know, it, the name is is supposed to say it all. And I don't know where exactly that comes from. But, it, you know, we don't really sort of place ourselves in the grand scheme of things like that. I just say, hi, I'm Adam. And that's kind of it. That's all I am. <laughs> right. And so we don't know you as Adam, the journalist, or right. do you have another role as Adam, the whatever? The, right. Uh, the collector of uh, posters from the look, <laughs> look of your background. I, I, I do dabble in collecting, um, obviously. <laughs> so I guess how would how would I phrase that and sort of like talking to to people? It's like, you know, how do I, you know, introduce myself? How do I give you? as an indigenous person room to recognize yourself according to your traditions like you know as we're going into a conversation i i would start by just say who i am and acknowledge that uh, perhaps uh, hi we're gathering on the traditional territory of and i'm a whatever term you want to use to describe yourself uh Settlers seems to be getting a bad rap these days. Uh, <laughs> Non-native is clunky, so I'm never sure what how people prefer. Colonizer sounds pretty brutal, <laughs> so you know, think of think of a term that you would introduce yourself and then give the and say, would you care to introduce yourself in in your traditional way? Mm-hmm. And some some will, and some would be quite you know i'm bruce i'm i pass as white and i'm happy that way mm. but you give them the opening right i guess there, there are some people in the indigenous community who are kind of like i guess settlerized i guess i i don't know if that's an actual term but i mean or who haven't like gone back and and reestablished their their indigenous roots and and so i mean it's important to realize, and I guess this is in dealing with any community too, that you know, no two people of the same community are the same and think the same and react the same too. But 
this introduction you're talking about also gives room for those people who have reestablished their roots to, you know, uh, to, to, to do that. Yes. Yeah. And uh, you make a good point about the diversity within a community. But I also remember that some of those people are 60 scoopers. And so they never had the chance to reestablish that connection. It was broken at birth. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty hard. And I, this this point was kind of well made with a lot of the 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 marches and the uh, protests in front of the, the Basilica of Our Lady earlier this summer. A lot of people talking about how, you know, they did not know themselves. They did not know their communities. They had to actively go out and put the put the pieces together and solve the mystery of themselves and um that's not an easy or immediate process either right that's it's a long it can be a long process uh i know people who are still trying to unravel or re-ravel the pieces and try to find out who am i and where where did i come from mm-hmm. really important question so uh, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, let's get back to the <laughs> <laughs> the original question, because right. there is more about protocols. Uh, I, was, I was thinking the same way. Go okay. ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Traditionally, we think in terms of reciprocity. Mm. So you ask me a question, or maybe you're... The, qu- the question might be fine, but if you're looking for knowledge, then what is what is being offered in reciprocity for that information. Right. And in this area, uh, the tr- a traditional piece would be a small amount uh, of t- sema, traditional tobacco, tied in a red piece of cloth. I, I mean, ideally it would be traditional tobacco and it would ideally be in 100% cotton. But, you know, uh, the reality sometimes comes in. You can't, it's really hard to find uh, semi-traditional tobacco unless you grow it yourself. Right. Unless you have friends who are growing it for you. But a little, uh, and it doesn't have to be a huge amount. I have seen it offered as a cigarette broken in half. Hmm. I've seen it offered as uh, just regular tobacco, but in a little cloth. And traditionally, it was supposed to be the amount to fill the bowl of a, a native pipe. Mm-hmm. So not huge, but not not insignificant either. But uh, that reciprocity extends to when we're collecting a food or medicines. We'll put uh, tobacco down. So if I were gathering, say, some uh, oh, some fungus for a fire starter. I would, before I took it, I would make sure there was enough. I could take one and it wouldn't upset the apple cart. <laughs> and I would put a little bit of tobacco down uh, in exchange. Mm-hmm. So, so that idea of reciprocity is a very important piece. And it shows uh, that you're acknowledging that the information is worthwhile to you, or the knowledge, or whatever you're seeking has value. Mm-hmm. Which is, again, different from a settler idea, which is that the knowledge is kind of its own, like the sharing of knowledge is its own 
kind of gift or its own kind of reward. It's like, I'm asking you for information and in return, I'm going to share that information with everybody else. Right. And sometimes that information is not shareable. Sure. Yeah. So then that's another piece that you have to consider. And depending who you're, if you were talking to an elder or a knowledge keeper, they might say, this I can talk about. This is not for public dissemination. I would only discuss it within a certain context, maybe a sharing circle or a uh, learning circle. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's a, that's also a journalistic standard, too. It's off the record. There are things that people share with you that are off the record that you can't publish, but can give you ideas where you can like go out and find it on the record somewhere else. And that there's that's a long journalistic tradition. Yes, yes. But you need to, I guess, as a journalist you were, uh, dealing with an indigenous person, it might mm. be wise to make that explicit, not yes, not an understood thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I guess then, you know, even before we get to the the traditions and the sort of the the way we ha- kind of get into the conversation, I guess, you know, when you know, someone like me is reaching out to a member of an indigenous community, someone whom we, we've never met before. And, you know, we want to kind of get comment from them or get that knowledge from them. I guess the way I do that with like, you know, the city councilors, I'll send them a quick email like, hey, can we chat by on the phone briefly? I would gather there's a more, uh, shall we say, culturally friendly way to do that with members of the indigenous community when we're reaching out. Yes, uh, a phone call and then a, usually when it's possible a face-to-face meeting is always preferred. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the elders just aren't going anywhere near technology. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, that, like Facebook is just out of the question. Email, yes, but it's usually just to set up the meeting. Right. And in Interesting. COVID times we would often if I want to meet with someone it'll be a walk along the river somewhere oh, yeah. in the open oh. yeah hmm. then I, I guess I know that I've been kind of not kind of but I have been curious and I, I've wanted to kind of pursue these these sorts of conversations more I feel like uh, I don't know, maybe my, my name is Adam Donaldson. So, I mean, you can't get any more whiter than that, just about, except for maybe John Smith. So I, I do wonder sometimes if just like that impersonal nature of like the random email is, is sort of a turnoff too. And I, I've often wondered that. And I guess the case you're making is, yeah, it kind of is. Yeah, it is. And uh, the other thing is often you might be asking one person, but that one person is part of the community right. and will not be able to s- if your question is broad they may mm-hmm. f- your their first response may be nothing because that's easy <laughs> no comment <laughs> not even no comment just dead silence and i know that's that's a hard one to uh, to understand and uh, parse out but it often it's just no, I have nothing to say, and I don't want to engage with you. Mm. But then, if you move beyond that, 
and somebody does want to engage, you've got to give them enough time because they may have to go back to a community, it mm. might be a small group, and say, what can I share? So uh, if I were speaking uh, uh, for, say, a fire keeping circle, I would have to talk to each of the fire keepers and we would discuss what could I speak at, on behalf of the group and what would I have to make sure you understood was coming just my personal reflection. Mm -hmm. So there's always that, that piece. And that makes it tough when you have deadlines. Yes, I was going to say that it's, it's kind of uh, anathema to how the modern world works, um, especially in, in internet journalism. I guess one of the things I wonder about is as a settler and observing sort of like indigenous traditions and, and indigenous uh, like sort of practices for, for communication, do I not run the risk as Whitey McWhiterson of like somebody in the indigenous community taking offense by, by observing indigenous practices? Depends on how you come. Mm. You come with respect for what you are observing. Mm. Are you a listener? Are you going to interrupt? <laughs> so, so if I said, uh, well, come to the sacred fire and observe, I'd be happy to talk to you outside the fire, but not right by the fire in that circle, because mm. that's, that's a space where ceremony is occurring. That's where uh, we're leaving space for people to offer their prayers or whatever they need to bring to the fire, concerns, whatever. But outside that, and especially if there were a couple of fire keepers, one would maintain the fire and make sure of the safety of, of the guests at the fire, but the other person would be able, free to move out and engage and explain. And because that fire is in a public park, we have a lot of people who don't know what is happening and want mm. to know. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so it's, it's both a ceremony and education. And mm -hmm. the trick, uh, well, the trick, yes. It's the object is to find that balance point where you can keep the ceremony, ceremony, and the education piece is separate, but part of. And I think people are bringing a lot of enthusiasm to sort of learning these things too. And that can, you know, that can be kind of off-putting if you're just kind of like bound in to a, a, a sacred area and like, oh, this is so interesting. What's going, and you, it may be a, a point of like sort of genuine infectious interest, but you are kind of breaking the rules by <laughs> showing that. <laughs> yes. And that's why we, uh, the city has been good with signage so that there is a, there is a space to engage before you reach the the fire and we've found ways of marking delineating the sacred area uh, traditionally it would have been with uh, cedar fronds laid on the ground but uh, a rope with uh, colored ties for the four directions works a lot better in the park <laughs> <laughs> yeah you have to adapt um the other thing I was, and this is kind of philosophical, but 
you know, there's been a lot of talk and I've seen this at like council meetings and sort of official things where they've said like, we need to make room to for like the settler community to, you know, lead from behind is a term I, I hear a lot. My question though is, isn't that putting a lot on the indigenous community to like, you know, the settlers kind of came in, upset the whole order of things, you know, forced indigenous people to lose their culture, lose their language. And now we're coming back in and saying, no, no, no. Now show us what we did wrong and how to do it better. I mean, that seems like a lot of pressure to me. <laughs> well said. Yeah. Uh, there are a great number of people who do find that they're spending so much time educating non-natives that they don't have time to learn ceremony tradition themselves so uh and in the academic world i gather it's it's a really big issue uh you might want to talk to some of our friends up at the, at the university they they spend a lot of time educating their peers mm. so before they can get on with the business and often it's you know uh, one indigenous person is expected to know the 600 plus nations and right. all the protocols and ceremonies. Right. <laughs> so Google is a good friend <laughs> for everyone. A lot can be learned, you know, the basics, so that you don't come into it as an empty vessel. You come right. with you come with a certain level of knowledge, and then you refine that with the specifics of where you are and whose land you're on. Mm -hmm. uh, we're finding in this area that we're recommending many times that people do either take the University of Alberta MOOC, uh, the massive online course. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, the blanket exercise that uh, is being offered this week is another tool. Uh, there's a mapping exercise that looks at the same story but from the settler viewpoint. Mm -hmm. like, where did I come from? When did I come to this land? And who was there when I arrived? So just a slightly different take. Uh, I think it's a little gentler. Uh, it's really good with church groups, especially with mm -hmm. an elderly church group. It, it, it introduces it without uh, gang people so uh, either riled up or so guilt-ridden that they can't to process the information. Getting back into sort of 20 minutes ago when I asked the first question, you know, <laughs> I, I guess how much of, you know, kind of what maybe what part of what reconciliation should be is just sort of people in the settler community sort of leaving indigenous people alone and like leaving it up to the indigenous people to say you know when they can invite settlers in to sort of educate us like is it a matter of like maybe leaving indigenous communities to figure out their own directions and reclaim their own histories and then it's a matter like sort of leaving us to figure out how to reconcile things amongst ourselves without necessarily dragging the indigenous community in to try and reconcile things if you know what i mean yeah uh we wrestle with that all the time, that we want to engage 
but we, uh, yeah, it has to be on our terms, I guess is the best way of putting it. We have limited energy, really limited resources. Uh, just think of this community. There's no friendship center. Mm. There is no government money going to indigenous, uh, grassroots indigenous. There is to health organizations, but that's that's on a different scale. So if if we put on an educational event, where do, where does the funding, to, you know, we have to rely on uh, a free location. And what does that usually end up being? A church. <laughs> and, what does that, and what does that do to certain people in the community? They are never going to show up, are they? Yeah. Right. Right. So there are there are some really tough issues around that uh, location. Uh, even uh, like as firekeepers, we'd love to bring in uh, firekeepers with more knowledge. If they're living out of town, how do you even pay their gas money? Right. Those are those are issues that the local community has to struggle with and figure out how how to do it how to make it work uh, mm -hmm. part of and at the same time we don't want to not engage but you're right some uh, some of the work has to be done by the settler community on their own and the, I think it's a case of you'll reach a certain point where you'd realize uh, we can't do it on our own. We have to come together. And Murray Sinclair has said that it's not going to be in his generation, which would be my generation. It's not going to be in our children's generation. With great hope, he looks to his grandchildren's generation when reconciliation begins in mm. a meaningful way. Begins in a meaningful yeah. way. Yeah. Because I, I think this is something I, I think about, too, is that you know 500 years since you know white people started landing here and I, I i think there's a sort of genuine desire for people to to reconcile and and to really wrestle with the truth but of course you know we live in the 21st century and we want everything immediately and that's you just can't reconcile 500 years of and it's still happening too i mean there are still missing and murdered indigenous women there's still boiled water advisories there's still all the these issues going on so it's not even like the issues are over and now we can firmly begin reconciliation it's you know we're it <laughs> yes when you drive your car and the tire is sitting on my foot and yeah. you're saying oh i'm really sorry but you haven't moved the car right it's, it's hard yeah <sighs> it's it's <laughs> it, it's it's so much to wrap your head around too and I'm curious to get your thought about this aspect to it. I mean, the territorial acknowledgements are sort of pro forma now. No matter what the community event is, no matter who's hosting it, there is a territorial acknowledgement. I'm wondering if this is kind of one of those things that, I mean, it's nice that we do it, but I'm wondering how much value there is to it now. I mean, how do you personally see the territorial acknowledgement as, as sort of like a, a piece of the reconciliation puzzle? Is, does it still carry value? Oh, yes. 
Very okay. much so. It makes people think about where they are. Where they are you on the land? And I've had the great fortune to work with a, a few community groups. And my favorite was with the Guelph Arts Council. Mm. We met at a Christmas party. <laughs> and the discussion was, we'd like to make one, but we are not sure how to begin. And my first response was, well, you know, like, what do you do? And they explained. I said, well, then, what's your community's relationship to the land? And by the way, you have indigenous artists. Have you talked to them yet? Right. A year later, they came back and said, would you like to see what we've come up with? And I said, absolutely. And part of theirs says, we gain our vision and our inspiration from the land and waters when we produce our art. You know, so they spent some time thinking about what was that relationship. Mm -hmm. And if people do that, then there's a great deal of value. Uh, I'm less interested in pro forma statements that were on the land of this particular nation because in a way that's colonial. You've picked right. a certain point in time and said, this is a really important time and the previous 500 years don't mean anything and the following two or three hundred years aren't as important as a certain year when a treaty was signed. Right. But what happens if you take a more generic treaty, such as the dish with one spoon, and you say, ah, can I live with that the obligations that that treaty gave me to respect the land and water, take only what I need, make sure there's enough for my kids and grandkids for seven generations, keep the dish and spoon clean, think of the spoon as a symbol for we won't use uh, hard, uh, sharp objects, and in our conversations across this kitchen table with you and I, we're not using sharp words either. Mm-hmm. So, it's important. I mean, I, I, I guess that's something to keep in mind going forward. It, it's not just like a matter of acknowledging the territory. It's acknowledging sort of like what is important. The reason why you do a ter ter territorial acknowledgement at city council is different from a reason why you would do one at an arts council event. Exactly. Yeah. But even for the city council to say, what is the city, is the city administering things with a view to the future, to that seven generations? Or have you forgotten that piece? And by the way, how are you doing at keeping the dish clean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, all of this is being administered under a system established by a settler culture, too. The, the, what, what, what we understand as governance is a European construct, not an indigenous construct. <laughs> yeah, and that brings a, us to a really interesting point. The city often says, we have consulted with the indigenous people. And when you dig down, who have they consulted with? The Mississaugas of the Credit or the Haudenosaunee Confederacy? Mm -hmm. Why? Because those are similar organizations. They have a structure, a pyramid structure. Right. So. Oh, 
I recognize you have a treasure. I, I can talk to your treasure. I can talk to your director of projects. But when they come to the local community, what do they see? They see circles. And pyramids and circles just don't fit together well. Right. <laughs> so when they s ask if, say, uh, say they came to uh, the firekeeping circle, and I'd say, uh, they s might ask, well, who's your treasure? Well, today, the fellow with the envelope that carries the gas money is. Right. <laughs> and next week, it might be somebody else because he won't be able to carry the gas money because he's away doing something else. Well, who's who speaks for the group? Well, we do. Because that circle of seven or eight or nine men, everyone has an equal voice. If I'm asked to speak for them, it's because the seven or eight have said, you've got the time, <laughs> and uh, maybe that's a turtle uh, responsibility. Mm-hmm. Maybe I mean, we I won't send a bear. Right, right. <laughs> no, it, it just, it, it strikes me, you know, even in our best efforts to sort of try and reach out, it, it just, you know, it, it seems kind of sloppy, right? Because we're, we're not kind of approaching it from like an understanding of the culture we're, we're approaching it from an understanding of our, of how we've matted our culture over another culture and even though we, we say it's reaching out as you said we're looking for who's the mayor who's the counselor who's the 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 cao um who's you know the chief of parks and, and it, it that's just it, it's it's two completely different systems, but I mean, we we can only think of the one way, even while we're trying to make an effort into trying to think other ways. That's right, and remember too that we might come back and forth three or four times. Uh, we would gather, hear what somebody brought as a report from the city, we'd talk about it, go back and say, we have more questions. Mm. And it might take three or four back and forth before we could really say what we what we wanted to say. Cities find that frustrating. Mm -hmm. it, it's time consuming. They don't build that amount of time in. And so it's much easier to go to another like organization <laughs> and yes, tick off the box. We've done the accommodation piece. We've done the the talking. Patience, right? It's, I mean, that that's kind of what a lot of these things come down to is patience, you know, whether it's like me writing a story, whether it's the city trying to build like a road or a new community center or library or whatever. It's, it's, it's just, we have our deadlines and there's no patience. We, we don't let the decision happen. We make the decision happen. Very true, yeah. And the way around that, I suppose, for someone in journalism would be to look ahead. Okay, National Truth and Reconciliation Week is. Okay, so instead of the week before, a month before, I put out the feelers and say, who is there that I can talk to? Mm -hmm. You just have to build in a longer time frame so that the indigenous community feels 
A, respected, and B, has the real opportunity to, to make a, a real response that isn't just one person's off-the-cuff remarks, but rather the pondering takes place in a, in a circle. Well, Bruce, I feel like that's a big old laser pointer directed at me. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. And I mean, you know, it's it's it, it's the nature of the beast, right? It, it's you know, I have my checklists. I have my things I, I, I do every day, every week. And, you know, time runs out and, you know, it, it's it's hard to take the time to make sure there is time. And I mean, and again, that's a very settler culture thing to Absolutely. to run yourself to the nub <laughs> oh yeah i i um, i wasn't just picking on you I, <laughs> I i just think of so many instances where tomorrow i need an answer right and the response is well then you'll have to do take your answer without our input mm -hmm. we just can't operate on that time frame mm -hmm. and so yeah uh part of it is that education piece. I think uh, there are places where it's better understood now within the cities. Uh, just building that fire with Parks and Rec, you know, that was that wasn't a short, quick decision. It was, uh, well, some of my friends say it was 25 years in the making. Right. <laughs> but it was really two and a half years of discussion, building a relationship so that parks and rec people understood when we said, well, we need to find the right place. It was, oh, it's not just a case of finding a place where the trees are high enough that you won't burn the trees down when you put your fire up. But that's a really great example of, of how you sort of have to change minds to to have real accomplishments too right i mean you know the, 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 you say we want to have a, a fire pit and of course the automatic visceral response is no because we have bylaws that say you can't have fires in your backyard and it, you know it, it, it's this very sort of the mind goes to the worst possible scenario as opposed to thinking about the very specific needs that the community is asking for when they want a sacred fire. Right. And part of it was saying, no, a fire, it's not a bonfire. It's right. a sacred fire. It could be two twigs. It could be a candle. The size isn't important. In fact, we often joke amongst ourselves that, uh, a big fire you're shouting at the creator mm. so, mm -hmm. <laughs> so you know it can be small well that was a teaching moment for the fire department because they were convinced that we were going to have this enormous blaze once we got past that then it was more practicalities uh, is there a gas pipeline in the area is there either hydro lines once we got those things out, the fire department essentially said, we're good, carry on. And then it was with parks to find, is this the best location? What does the indigenous community think? Have we done the due diligence? And then it was, how shall we design it so that it fits the locale? Mm -hmm. so, but that was then a year of discussions and essentially teachings. But they were ready 
mm-hmm. they were willing to take the time. Mm-hmm. And so every time we gathered, we did it with a bit of ceremony, a smudging, of maybe a little bit of a teaching mm-hmm. about. Well, when it came time, mm-hmm. you've seen the seven, uh, the four large uh, rocks that are placed around the fire pit. When it came time to talk about those, then there were teachings about what did the grandfathers mean. Then there was great understanding when we went out and got those and found them and chose them, or they chose us, and we uh, they fellow run, running the uh, front end loader brought one up and then he stopped and he looked at us and said, do you have to do ceremony before I put the rock in place? Uh, yes, thank you. <laughs> 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 we'll just wait until you've got that <laughs> boom in <laughs> locked in place and then we'll put the tobacco down and whatever. So mm-hmm. yeah. But Interesting. You know, that, that wouldn't have happened at in the first year. Right. And I would say too, like something like the sacred fire that's a little easier to sort of get everyone's head around because it, it's it's goal oriented. You want to build a sacred fire, which is something a little more direct than something as like as as big and broad as truth and reconciliation. But I mean, in that, there's still progress. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And truth and reconciliation is what you want it to be. Uh, I think, again, Marie Sinclair said, it's in the conversations we have with our neighbors and family. So you and I are working on truth and reconciliation right now, Mm -hmm. just in this conversation. Mm -hmm. And hopefully this will spark more interesting conversations over the dinner table. I don't want to, I mean, because we could talk about this all day, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I do want to give you an opportunity to, you know, anything we haven't covered here that you, you want to make, like, like uh, any firm points about anything you, you want to sort of, I guess this is the open mic part of the podcast, you know, if, 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 if me being, you know, me and my settler minded ways have not covered anything you think is important, uh, I want to give you that opportunity to set me straight or set all of us straight or however you want to uh, approach this <laughs> first just uh, gratitude for being with you and uh, having this conversation it felt like a true conversation not not just a Q&A session so I, I'm grateful for that uh, Adam uh, more than that I think it's important that everyone remembers that within the community of Guelph, there are so many nations represented. In the circle of fire keepers, there are at least four different nations. Mm. And that's just in a, a group of seven or eight men. In some of the other circles that operate within the city, everything from the West Coast, uh, I'm not aware of any well there is one Inuit gentleman who's in and out of town so you know we're covering from coast to coast to coast as the old hockey people used to say (laughs) perhaps we should not be thinking about the numbers of indigenous people in our community but the the numbers of clans and nations that are are represented in our community well 
it speaks to the diversity of ceremony, opinions, and way of being. Um, and we have disagreements within the communities because of that. Uh, I'm partial to the fire because it's a place where those uh, differences are just set aside because most nations respect the fire as men's medicine, the water as women's. And so mm. that proximity is also a, a key piece. Interesting. Uh, trying to hold them in balance. <laughs> <laughs> well, too much water puts the fire out. That's too right. Much fire boils the water away. So. That's right. <laughs> Everything has a purpose. Indeed. Indeed. Well, we'll have to give up the space around the digital fire here for now. But uh, Bruce Weaver, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. This was really great. Thank you so much. Yahweh. Thank you. And once again, that was Bruce Weaver. There will be a number of activities and events on Thursday to mark the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, including a ceremony on Johnston Green at the University of Guelph, a demonstration of Anishinaabe oral traditions at the Guelph Civic Museum, and a sacred fire drum circle and craft fair hosted by the Southwest Ontario Aboriginal Health Access Centre in Royal City Park. And you can get all of those details in a post at Guelph Politico. And that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio, at the University of Guelph. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you will get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, and you can send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you would like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where we will have a nice new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week. And until then, we will see you next time. <laughs>